Hello and welcome to the Kotsk Podcast. I'm Jordan Wozniak. And I am Gavin Michael. Today's episode is Why is Masada Absent from Halachic Discussion? So Gavin, we're going to be leaving Shabbatai Tzvi behind in today's episode, I would yes, guess. Yes, we spent quite a bit of time on him. We'll do something completely different today. Something completely different. That's right. And we're we're spooling back about uh, you know sixteen hundred years, I suppose, in Jewish history from the time of Shabtai Tzvi to the Roman era, and uh, this uh, this really unusual event in Jewish history and how it was perceived by, or I guess maybe not perceived by uh, by the Jewish world, and. Uh, I think maybe it's a good idea for us to start with a little bit of the history of this Roman era, right? Uh, if we could. So uh, there were three, you know, this the story of Masada. A lot of people have been to uh, Masada. If you've visited Israel, it's a really popular tourist attraction for very obvious reasons. And I think a lot of people have a general idea about what its history is. But uh, maybe you could refresh our memories about about these rebellions. What was happening in, in Judea? In you know during that era, those 75, 80 years of rebellion during the Roman era. All right. So I think we need to start um, at the outset by saying that most of our history from this period is taken from Josephus. Josephus was a – he actually started out as a rebel uh, Jewish leader. He was captured by, by the Romans. His Hebrew name is Yosef ben Matityahu HaKohen. He came from, a, you know, obviously a, a priestly father, and his, his mother was from the Hashmonaim. So he came from quite, quite a, a, a good lineage. He had, he had royal blood, and he, he had kahuna in him as well. And um, yeah. he was the official historian to the Roman army, and most of our history comes from from his his accounts, and I think we also need to say that not everybody is happy with the historicity of um, Josephus. But be that as it may, um, we don't really have too much else to go on. So let's talk a little bit about some of the revolts or the revolutions that were taking place in the first and second century centuries CE. Um, there were three main Jewish rebellions or revolutions against the Roman authorities. The first revolution is known as the Great Revolt, and this took place between 66 and 73 CE. And obviously, if the temple was destroyed in 70 CE, the destruction of the temple took place right in the middle of that um, great re- great revolt. Many, many Jews were killed during that period, and it, it was a terrible, a terrible time for the Jewish people. 42 years later, a second rebellion broke out, and this rebellion or revolution is known in Hebrew as Merit Hagaliot, or the uh, uprising of the, di- of the diaspora, it's also known as the Kittus War after um, Quitus. Kittus is a corruption of the word Quitus, of the name Quitus. And it's called the Uprising of the Diaspora because this revolution did not take place within Eretz Israel. 
it took place outside of Israel. It took place in exile. In fact, it took place in um, what was what's today known as Libya, in Cyprus, in Egypt. And what happened was the Roman garrisons were away fighting a war on the Eastern Front. And just small localized sections of the Roman army remained behind in Libya, Cyprus, Egypt, etc. And the Jews found that to be a soft target, so they attacked the Roman garrisons. Apparently they were quite ruthless in attacking these Roman garrisons. Eventually Quietus came. Roman reinforcements arrived under the leadership of Quietus, Kittus, and the revolution was completely suppressed. But it was also ruthlessly, just as ruthlessly repressed. And the Jewish community in Alexandria, for example, in Egypt at that time, which was one of the most prestigious of the diaspora communities, was utterly and completely devastated and destroyed. And this took place between 115 and 117 CE. So that was 40 odd years after the Great Revolt. So that's our second revolution. Fifteen years later, we have our third revolt, and this is the revolution that most people are familiar with, the Bar Kokhba revolt. This took place between 132 and 135 CE. In the beginning, this revolt was quite successful. Jews achieved a degree of independence in Judea, for example. It became an independent province, but it didn't last long because the Romans once again suppressed that revolt. Um, but this time they repressed it even more ruthlessly than before because they had enough, they had had enough of 70 odd years of um, Jewish uprisings and Jewish rebellion against the Romans, and they butchered the Jews literally into humiliating submission. And the defeat of Bar Kokhba pretty much. Um, came to represent the end of Jewish presence in Palestine, in Eretz Israel at the time. But we need to go back to Masada now, because now that we have some kind of a perspective of the three great revolutions that were taking place, let's go back to our first revolution, the Great Revolt, and Masada. Masada takes place in 73 CE. So that's three years after the destruction of the Second Temple. And as most people are aware, Masada is a natural fortress. The Jews were holding out against the Romans on top of this fortress. When it became clear that the Romans were about to reach the top of Masada, the rebel leader, Elazar ben Yair, calls upon his people to murder their own families and to commit suicide rather than be taken captive and to submit to the horrors that were awaiting, that were sure to, to befall the uh, Jewish people on top of Masada. I'm going to, I'm going to just give you a quotation, Jordan, from, from Josephus himself, um, describing what actually took place on top of Masada. They embraced their wives with great love, and pressed their children to their hearts. 
kissing them for the last time with tears in their eyes, and at the same time completing their design, and they all slaughtered their families. Thereupon they chose by lot, ten of their number, who would slaughter all of them, and each one stretched out on the ground next to his killed wife and children, enfolding them in his arms, and willingly stretching out his neck for the slaughter at the hands of the ten men who fulfilled this awful deed. And Josephus concludes, so did they all die in faith. So that's how Josephus describes the mass suicide that took place in 73 CE on top of Masada. And so we should note also, right, that Josephus did not see this with his own eyes. He, he was, um, uh, this is something that he heard about from people who had been there, presumably from Romans who came and saw it, or from a couple of survivors who then later reported to the, to the Romans, right? Because by the time that Masada came around, the events of Masada, uh, Josephus had already, he, he was kind of a turncoat, can we say it that way? He had been part of the Judean army, the Jewish army, and uh, he had kind of gone over to the Roman side. And uh, he writes his history several decades after all of this happened, and he had kind of been Romanized by that point, and he took on the name, uh, the first name Flavius, I think in honor of his Roman patrons, and he was writing uh, not in Aramaic or Hebrew, but he wrote all of his memoirs in Greek. Um, and uh, from what I understand, not terribly good Greek. It was very obvious that he was a, uh, that it was very much a third, second or third language for him. Um, but, but he did not see this. So what we know about what happened at Masada comes from Josephus as kind of a um, second or possibly third hand account. But, and this wasn't, you know, the, the, the story of rebellion and the story of mass suicide is not the only story that we know of of mass suicide during this Roman era. Is that right? Yes. Um, just two points that I, I want to make. I know that Josephus is regarded by many as a, as you say, a, a turncoat, but we must remember he was captured. Right. Um, he was actually captured at Yotfat. I think let's just talk about that for, for a moment. Um, Josephus, yes, he may not have witnessed Masada, as you pointed out, but he witnessed other events where mass suicides were taking place. For example, in Gamla, about six years before Masada, in 67 CE, Josephus writes that a, a great mass suicide took place, where Jews committed mass suicide in, in Gamla. There were 9,000 Jews. The Romans attacked this town of Gamla. They killed 4,000 Jews. And the remaining 5,000 chose to commit suicide. Now, that's quite something. In Masada, there was something like 900 and something, 930 odd, odd, odd people committed suicide. But in Gamla, apparently 5,000 people chose to commit suicide. So that was actually, in terms of suicide, that was even a bigger event than um, Masada. And then at Yotfat, another mass suicide took place. And Josephus witnessed that mass suicide. So he may not have witnessed Masada, but he was certainly involved in these apparently now three mass suicides taking place around about that, that um, time. So he was aware that these things were happening, even if he didn't see Masada with his own eyes. Correct. He had seen similar events taking place, and he was captured at Yotfat, in fact. 
Right. It's it's a really the story of Josephus. You know, perhaps it's a subject for another. Yes, episode it's another of our podcast, episode. It's a fascinating story. Yes, really yes. fascinating. And I think in in many cases, Josephus is the only like this the topic that we're discussing today. Josephus is the only source that we have yes, for yes. a lot of history in the Roman era. And uh, you know, he has like you say his some issues related to historicity. And as we'll find out, you know, some issues related to what does he emphasize and what does he leave out and uh, who, who, who is his audience and um, right. what is the nature of his writing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. For the purposes of today's episode, what we're going to talk about is the fact that the rabbinic writings don't mention Masada at all. So I think for our listeners to refresh everybody's memory on what we mean by rabbinic writings, we're talking about the Mishnah, which is the... I guess the earliest or one of the earliest codified uh, uh, sources of, you know, the, the written record of the oral law. And it comes from about this era. So it was, it kind of appears maybe in its, uh, in its whole and completely compiled form, uh, perhaps about 130, 140 years after Masada. But it certainly the era of the Mishnah, the rabbis who are quoted in the Mishnah uh, are living during this era of Masada to a huge extent. Uh, and then there are various midrashim that perhaps have content that dates back to this era. And then, of course, there's the Talmud, which is much, much longer than the Mishnah, and which you know at least starts out as a commentary on the Mishnah. And all of these texts, uh, out of all of them, Masada is not mentioned. I know that there's episodes of you know episodes of the Jewish War and different episodes of interactions between Jews and Romans that are recorded in the rabbinic writings, but Masada isn't. And so there's a huge question mark around that, right? Especially considering that Masada took place slap bang in the middle of the Mishnaic period, <laughs> which is right in right. the middle. Many, many of the early Tanaim, those of the rabbis from the Mishnaic period, would have witnessed, or maybe not witnessed, but they would have been around at the time of, of Masada, and they, they should have been aware of the events of, of Masada. But I just want to go back one step before we go into the... Um, rabbinic response or the lack of a rabbinic response to, to Masada and just talk for a moment about who the people on Masada were, who were these Jewish rebels, because that will have some bearing perhaps on what was to become the rabbinic response or the lack of a rabbinic response to Masada. So I, I think we just need to mention who these Jews on top of Masada were supposed to be. Right. So according to some people, they were the Sikarim. Um, the Sikarim were a group of Jewish zealots. They were fiercely um, independent. They believed in Jewish independence. They wanted nothing to do whatsoever with, with Rome. They were not prepared to form any alliances with, Roman, with the Roman government. And they, they were called the Sikarim for a very, very interesting reason. They, they carried... A sikah. A sikah is a small dagger, small enough to be concealed in the cloaks of the Jews, of the Jewish rebels. It's interesting. I come from, from Africa and in Zulu to this day, sikah means to cut. <laughs> I don't know what the connection oh, is, but it's just quite, quite interesting. <laughs> but <laughs> theologically, these sikarim on top of Masada, they, they, they had a certain theology. And that theology, fascinatingly, um, 
put the notion of hashgacha pratis or divine providence right in the forefront of their of their belief system. So they were strong believers in divine providence that nothing happens by accident. And they read the fact that they were on Mount Masada at that time with the Romans on their backs for a reason. Mm-hmm. And that reason was that they commit suicide. Interesting. Yeah. Rather than be taken captive by, by the Romans. So there was this very, very strong belief in Hashgacha Pratis by these very, very fanatical and fiercely independent Jewish um, zealots. Um, and, and, and that, you know, already shows that the rabbis might not have been happy with this extreme group, and that may be one of the reasons why they weren't prepared to talk about, about Masada um, too much. But before we go, just to go back another step, Jordan, if you don't mind, um, mm-hmm. let's just look at the actual historicity of Masada, because that also might have some bearing on the response of the rabbis or the lack thereof. So I think we need to point out that not everybody agrees that Masada actually took place. Now, I'm not suggesting that it did or it didn't. I'm just simply sharing, sharing with you some of the uh, literature. I know it's very, very conservative, um, very, very um, controversial. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's a... M- touches on Masada, which is a source of pride for the, for the Jewish people, but I'm just sharing with you a couple of sources. So, for example, Nachman ben Yehuda argues that Josephus' account is completely inaccurate. He disagrees with the story of Masada. He disagrees with, with um, Josephus' account of Masada. And one of the main reasons is he asks, where are the graves? Where are the bodies? We don't have any evidence of the bodies. Okay, so that's his, that's his objection. On the other hand, Yigael Yadin, the famous Israeli archaeologist, um, he explains that a Roman garrison actually remained in Masada for 40 years after Masada, which means that they had enough time to somehow dispose of the bodies. They either threw them down the mountain where they would have succumbed to the ravages of heat, wild animals and time, or they may have burnt them. Another archaeologist, Zev Meshel, says something very interesting. It wasn't just Masada, where we don't have bodies. In fact, even during the Great Revolt, when the temple was destroyed, we don't have evidence of bodies from the destruction of the temple either. And neither do we have evidence of bodies from the Bar Kokhba Revolt. You know, so, so what, do we say that none of these things happen? Again, uh, he suggests that the Romans had ways of disposing of, of, of the bodies. Um, and, you know, the, the truth yes, lies somewhere between these various opinions. Um, but I think we, we do need to point out that not everybody holds that the Masada story is, is historically true. And it could be, it could be that some of the rabbis believed that the story was not true, and hence they did not write about Masada in the Mishnaic or even in the Talmudic history. In fact, Masada is absent 
from Jewish discourse in the literature for 2,000 years. Never mind the Mishnev, never mind the Gemara, never mind the Goenim, the Rishonim. For 2,000 years, there is no discussion of Masada in rabbinic literature. And this is something that boggles the mind. This is something that begs um, exploration. It's I, I, The thing I find interesting that's, I think, a parallel idea to this is to the best of my knowledge, you know, so Josephus, we mentioned already, Josephus is our source for this period. And he, um, you know, we, we sometimes forget because there's many historical events that uh, in the ancient world that we have, you know, written records of, but, you know, write it, not everybody could write in that era. Even if they could read, they couldn't write. And, you know, to set something down in a written form was not as common as it is now. And uh, preserving writings uh, took a lot of a deliberate effort, and so it could be that there were written records that uh, of you know Masada of the Roman War uh, that um, that took place, you know that, that were that were extant at that time that just simply have been lost to us because they got destroyed or they got burnt. But Josephus is our record, and I think it's fair to say that the rabbis, you know, through all of the literature of you know the Mishnaic, Talmudic, like you say, Gaonim, Rishonim, everybody don't really engage with Josephus, right? There's some references, I think maybe to him, some, there's a, I think a text that's like a popular translation or adaptation of some of the stories of Josephus, but he, he he's kind of mostly ignored. Yes, he's sidelined. He's sidelined by, by the uh, rabbinic authorities, absolutely sidelined. And I think, you know, there's some reasons for that. There's uh, uh, most likely later inserted, you know, post-Josephus reference yeah. to Jesus in Josephus that yeah. I think probably uh, people... Uh, although the rabbis do reference Jesus a number of times in the Talmud, but yes. Absolutely, although then we don't know if it's actually Jesus <laughs> they're referring to or somebody else. Absolutely, okay, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. But I think, yeah, the, your, your point that this is, you know, so this is something that, you know, it happened during a key, it, it happened around the time of the destruction of the temple, right? It's just a few years later. Uh, you know, it happened in it happened in Eretz Israel, right? Masada is just, you know, I was just looking on the map. It's 50 kilometers from Jerusalem. It's very close to Jerusalem, yes, yes. And um, that's 30 miles for uh, those of you who, who speak miles. And, uh, and and yet it's not mentioned at all. And uh, and so there there are a few different explanations for this. And maybe maybe now is the time to discuss what those possible explanations are. The standard answer that's given as to, the why, as to why the rabbis were silent on Masada, on Gamla, on Yodfat, which were all events of mass suicide, is that the sages did not want to elevate the notion of suicide in their literature. They didn't want to hold suicide up as a value. This is the standard answer that's given. They didn't want Masada to become um, too much of a heroic event that would encourage Jews to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, we don't find mention in the Talmud, in the Midrashic sources, in Halacha, Agada, for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years. But the truth of the matter is that that answer is somewhat disingenuous. And it's disingenuous because the rabbis do speak about suicide on a number of, of occasions. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. And they almost laud the 
uh, committing a suicide under certain circumstances. And the operative words are certain circumstances. The pattern that emerges is as follows. The rabbis are quite happy. I don't mean that they are literally happy, but they're quite comfortable with the notion of suicide. If Jews commit suicide for um, religious reasons or for theological reasons, for halachic reasons, they're quite fine with that. But they wanted to create a new era where you were no longer respected or encouraged to commit suicide or if you committed suicide for nationalistic or for ideological reasons. Now, this is a very, very, very important point. Because at this point in history, just after the Bar Kokhba revolt, just after the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt, the rabbis had witnessed three huge phases of, phases of revolutions that, that ended in absolute disaster for the Jewish people, devastating disaster for the Jews. They now moved to Babylonia. They were in exile in Babylon. They didn't want to make trouble in Babylon. They didn't want Jews to revolt anymore. The number of Jews who died in these revolutions, according to one source that I saw, is um, higher than the Jews who were killed during the Holocaust per capita. Hmm. So the destruction of the Jews during all of these failed revolutions was, was enormous. It, it was tremendous. It was devastating. And the rabbis had had enough. You know, the Romans had enough of Jewish rebellion. It seems like the rabbis had had enough of Jewish rebellion. And remember, the rabbinic literature was just beginning to develop at this stage. Until then, we had Jewish aristocracy. We had, uh, you know, uh, leaders who, political leaders who were in control of the Jewish people. Now, after the destruction of the Second Temple, and certainly after Bar Kokhba, the rabbis were in charge. They were now the leaders, but they were leaders in exile. And they had to change the ethos of the Jewish people, the notion of Jews rising in rebellion, putting themselves at risk, and all the other Jews at risk at the same time was something that they had to uproot from the minds of, of Jewish people. And they didn't want any trouble in Babylonia. According to many sources, the Jews forged wonderful bonds with the governments and the leadership of Babylonia. They were allowed to study in peace, except for a couple of hiccups. In fact, they spent about a thousand years in Babylonia quite, quite, quite happily, quite, quite, quite peacefully. And for the most part, the rabbis became pacifists. They wanted to discourage Jews from fighting. There were two notable exceptions, Rabbi Akiva. We know Rabbi Akiva may, may have even had his own private army and uh, Shammai and the school of Shammai. But besides Akiva and Shammai, essentially most of the rabbis rather opted for a notion of absolute passivity. We're living in Golis. We're living in Babylonia. Dina da Malchusa Dina, the law of the country in which you reside, where you are living in exile, becomes your law. And you abide by the laws of the country. 
you do not rise in revolution against your host nation. So this new ethos is beginning to develop within rabbinic literature as the rabbis become more and more powerful and they become now the leaders of the Jewish people. They started taking terms, Jordan, words that had different meanings in earlier times and they ascribed a new meaning to these terms now, after Bar Kokhba, in Babylonia. So if I may, I'll give you a couple of examples. Please. The word freedom always meant what freedom means, <laughs> pretty much political freedom. You know, you're free. I'm, I'm free to do what I, I'm, I'm, I'm free to express myself. I'm free to live my life the way I want to live my life. I will not be under the dominion of somebody else. If I'm under someone else's dominion, I cannot be free. Jews as a nation also wanted to be free. We, we just had a temple for you know 420 odd years. Jews wanted to live free. They, they wanted to be free. We already had a, had a destruction of a temple beforehand, and we had been into exile beforehand. So we cherished our freedom during the second temple. So freedom meant a person being free, being independent. And suddenly after Bar Kokhba, in the rabbinic literature, we start getting teachings that state there is no free man except one who engages in the study of Torah. Mm-hmm. So a Ben Chorin, a free person is not someone who has land, controlled over his land and Jews living freely. No, 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 no. A free person is someone who studies Torah. So you could be spatially located in Golus, in exile in Babylonia, but you could still be free. You didn't have to fight for your freedom anymore. As long as you studied Torah, you were free. So that's one example of a change, not just in ethos, but an actual change in the language where freedom now started to mean something completely different than what it had meant before. Another example, might, gibor, ezeu gibor, who is a mighty person? Well, we know from the past, a mighty person was someone who carried a sika, a sword, a dagger, someone who fought, someone who um, gained independence for his people. No, suddenly now in Babylonia, after Bakochba, and the Mishnah tells us in Avos, um, Ezra Gibor, who is a mighty person, Hakovesh is someone who overcomes his, his Yetzirah, his evil inclination. That's who a mighty person, and not someone who fights, but someone who his Yetzirah tells him to do something that's wrong, his evil inclination wants him to sin, but he doesn't succumb to the enticement of the Yetzirah. That is a warrior. That is a mighty man. A third example, Jordan, is the notion of war. What does war mean? Milchama. War meant war. War meant battle. Revolution. Suddenly now, after Bar Kokhba, we start seeing teachings in various Gomorrahs. There's a whole number of Gomorrahs. Um, that speak about a, a, a milchama for the sake of the Torah, meaning that when you fight, not physically, 
but intellectually over ideas and concepts, which was the style that the Babylonian Talmud took, a dialectic style. And you battle out ideas in a base midrash, in learning. That becomes a war. That becomes the battle. It's a battle for the sake of Torah. And also, you battle with heaven with your prayers, where your prayers storm the heavens. So you're battling it out with your chavrusa in the base midrash, and you're battling it out with God. Um, but that's the scope of the battle. The battle doesn't go out of the base midrash, out of the shul. There is no battle in the street. So the notion of a milchama, of a war, changed as well. We also see an emphasis on submission. There are a number of Gomorrahs that start speaking about that when Jews walk, they keep their heads down. You find this later in uh, some of the Shulchan Aruch's developed this concept that you keep your head down. You don't look Dalit Amis, more than Dalit Amis in, in front of you. you. You keep your nose down. Um, another Gomorrah speaks about being as pliable as a reed, not like a cedar. In other words, you've got to learn to give you have to be submissive. And then, Jordan, in one of the most, uh, I don't know if I can use the word audacious, but in the, one of the most audacious Gomorrahs that I've ever seen, the Gomorrah has God telling the Jewish people not to rise in rebellion against the nations of the world. This is a Gomorrah in Kesuvus. Right at the end of Kesuvus, right? If on, I recall correctly. It's on Kufud Aleph, Amud Aleph. Right. And God binds the Jews by an oath, saying, if you abide by this oath, you'll be good. If not, I will make your flesh permissible like the flesh of the deer. In other words, your enemies will consume you if you try and rise in rebellion. So the Gomorrah has God in his glory almost drafted into this change of ethos that's developing in the literature and in the thinking and binding the Jewish people, telling them they're never allowed to rise in rebellion pretty much ever. I mean, with a teaching like this, you can understand why uh, you know, a, a couple of centuries, 2,000 odd years later, uh, when the state of Israel, when people were talking about establishing a state of Israel, you could see why, why, why uh, much of the, the religious establishment was against this, because you'd be going against the, this ethos and, and these kind of oaths not to rise in rebellion against, you know, wonderful host nations. Right. But there, there you have it. This is how the um, ethos of uh, rabbinic literature changed. And there, there are a number of rabbis who, who have spoken, uh, who, who speak about this. I've, I've, I've taken a source from Dr. Amir Mashiach for this. Rabbi David Bachaim speaks about this a lot. Even Chief Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs 
talks about a sword no longer being a sword, that in early literature he shows us a sword actually meant a sword, and suddenly after the Bar Kokhba era, era, a sword suddenly meant sharp debate in um, Torah learning, no longer a real sword. So, you know, I, I think the sources across the board are, are pretty good that something was happening, something happened after Bar Kokhba, and in the literature they wanted to keep the Jews subdued, passive and not wanting to rise up in rebellion and certainly not to not to commit not to commit mass suicides for the sake of ideology or for the sake of independence what comes to my mind in this discussion gavin is that you know even even though this this ethos develops and perhaps reaches a uh, a kind of nice sort of round presentation in Babylonia in the Talmud. The seeds are there early, right? Because when I think of that quote, who, who is strong, the person who overcomes his or her evil inclination, that, that is from, that's Ben Zoma, right? That's in, the, that's in Pirkei Avot. And that's an old Mishnahic period, yes. That's a, yes. It's from the Mishnahic period. And Ben Zoma, I think, you know, he's elsewhere quoted as, you know, seeing people in the Beit HaMikdash. So he, he, he's... He's in the kind of early Mishnaic period, let's say he's before the Roman Wars or maybe at the very beginning of the Roman Wars. So that this idea of, uh, and also brings to mind the usage of the term Ben-Chorin, Ben-Chorin. Yes, who's um, a free person, yes. In, exactly, in the Seder, right? In the Pesach Seder, that the idea like we're free people now, we're not, we're not Avadim, you know, we're not slaves to Pharaoh, now we are free, even though, you know, the, the Haggadah is kind of a, the core of the Haggadah is a Mishnaic text, and then later on it gets elaborated. But th this idea that you can be free, even being under the yoke or technically under the political control of outside regimes, that freedom is still possible. And so yes. it, it gets its it gets its full elucidation in Babylonia. But those seeds are pretty old as well. And the those, those seeds are are old. But remember that the rebellion started in sixty six. The Mishnaic period started right. around about the year 10. So this is 50 years into the Mishnaic period. But also bear in mind that the Hashmonaim, even from a long time before, were, the rebe were rebels as well. And uh, rabbis would have had to deal with their zealotry um, from much earlier times as well. So you're quite right. The seeds were there earlier, but there's probably good, so a good reason for, the, for those seeds being there earlier as well. Right. And so, you know, we were talking about how the rabbis come to redefine the notion of might, of strength, of uh, freedom. And, you know, in terms of as explanations for, you know, why do they take the attitude towards Masada that they take, which is which is silence. But then there are examples of uh, places where the rabbis do address suicide for certain reasons or tell stories about it. Uh, that come in various rabbinic sources. So maybe we can talk about talk about that. Yeah, sure. Um, this this again is something very very fascinating to see how rabbinic literature under certain circumstances. I mean, we have to be very careful what we say because I wouldn't want people to get ideas. But under certain circumstances, the, the rabbis do address the um, issue of, of of suicide under certain conditions. Um, um, and they they 
throw the the full weight of the authority in support behind the these these cases of of uh, suicide so should we look at a couple of examples yes let's okay um, bear in mind that we are trying to make the point that the rabbis had no real problem with suicide for religious reasons. Suicide for theological reasons was okay. They were trying to stop suicide for, for nationalistic and ideological reasons. So the examples that we're going to give are all examples where people committed suicide for theological reasons or for theological reasons. None of these are nationalistic reasons. And there's a good reason for that because they wanted to, to discourage suicide for political reasons. But let's look at a couple of examples. Say, so here's one example. There's a Gomorrah Gitin, which talks about 400 boys and girls who are being taken captive. And they knew that it was going to be for a disgraceful purpose. They knew what was in store for them. And the girls sort of asked the boys, you know, what do we do? Um, Should we drown? Should we jump into the sea? They were on a boat. What do we do? And the oldest of the boys stood up and he basically told them, you know, what's, what's going to happen. And when the girls heard this, they were the first people to fall into the sea. They jumped in, they committed suicide, and we are told that the boys followed. Afterwards, they also jumped into the sea, and they committed suicide, rather than being taken captive and being treated disgracefully. So the Gomorrah records that, but what's so interesting is it doesn't just you know, record it. It gives that event a pasuk. It ascribes a verse from the book of Psalms, gives them a pasuk, saying that there was a pasuk that was written in praise of that particular event. So, I mean, they're clearly nailing their colors on the mast, uh, showing everybody what their, their feelings were. That suicide was okay because it was a suicide for religious reasons. Hmm. So you can't say that they were against suicide. They were okay with that suicide. Here's another case, famous story of Hannah. And their seven sons. Remember, they were enticed to worship idols, and uh, the sons refused, and they got executed one after the other. When Hannah saw what was going on, she climbed on top of the roof and she fell down or she jumped down. And again, the Gomorrah, also in Gittin, records this, and the Gomorrah says, uh, give, gives a posuk gives a pasuk from Tehillim, a verse from Psalms, to Hannah, Aim Habanim Smecha. The famous pasuk, Aim Habanim Smecha. The mother of the sons rejoices in that suicide. Wow, that's amazing. It's mm-hmm. a, a, a second in endorsement, rabbinic endorsement of suicide. I found that very interesting. He has a third case. Rav Kahana. Rav Kahana we are told, was very poor. And what he did to earn money was he would weave baskets from palm leaves for women. I would imagine they were shopping baskets, literally. Right. And on one occasion, he was seduced by a particular noble woman, and he told her to wait while he went home to adorn himself, and when he got home, he obviously felt guilty. He climbed onto his roof and he jumped off his roof. He was 
about to commit suicide because he felt so bad. He was about to sin. And the Talmud says, Gomorrah says, that Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, was called and he had to travel very, very far, come from a faraway place. And he came just in time and he saved Rav Kahana from hitting the ground. He kind of sort of swept onto the scene, saved Rav Kahana, and Rav Kahana didn't die from his fall. Uh, that's the account. That's the account in the Gomorrah. And then Eliyahu Hanavi, the Gomorrah, says, asks, um, Rav, Rav Kahana, you know, why did you do this? And he says, I'm very, very poor. And because I was so poor, I could only weave baskets. So my job brought me in contact with women. And hence, I was seduced by one particular woman. And Elianavi then says, well, here, I'm going to give you a basket full of coins so that you don't have to engage in such work in the future. But essentially, <clears throat> what do we see from this? that although he didn't commit suicide, it was an attempted suicide. So <laughs> as, as mm -hmm. far as Rav Kahana was concerned, he was committing suicide. He didn't know Elian Navi was going to save him. But again, that story is, is re recorded, and the rabbis don't appear to be um, against that because Elian Navi was summoned. So there we have a couple of uh, um, examples of, of suicide being condoned I wouldn't even say to some extent, to a rather, a, a rather large extent, by giving them psukim um, by the rabbis in Talmudic literature. So this took place in the 2,000 years after Masada. So it is very strange that a mass suicide at Masada, 900-odd people, Gamla, you know, a couple thousand people, Yodfat. Why are these events silent? And the answer is, as we said in the beginning, the rabbis were trying to discourage political suicides. They were quite okay with religious suicides, but not with political suicides. So we have a silence, Jordan, a deathly silence for 2,000 years on Masada. And then what happens is that the political situation changes. We fast forward to the 20th century, and now, now there is a Jewish nation. It's 1960, right? There is a Jewish nation. There is the state of Israel. It has its own army, right? There is a Jewish army for the first time. I guess there were, uh, you know, small instances of yes. Jewish armies being raised yes. you know, in the intervening period. In Arabia for the most part, and you know, various places, yes. But essentially speaking, this was our first real army. Our first real army in you know in 1900 years <laughs> plus yeah. or minus yeah. and uh, and now yeah. the 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 uh, Israeli rabbis Zionist rabbis are forced to contend with you know what is what does Jewish law and Jewish philosophy have to say about the conduct of a modern army and so this is where we get into uh, the interpretation of Shlomo Goren who is. Uh, uh, he later became the chief rabbi, right, of Israel, the Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel. But at that time, he was the rabbi of the IDF. And uh, he he had to go looking in maybe some unusual places for, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. for guidance about what, <laughs> what a Jewish army should do. Right, right. Um, because the rabbis were silent, were, were silent right. on, on, on the issue essentially of revolution, of battle, of war, mass suicides in a war. Um, he, he didn't really have any literature to draw from. But in 1960, Rabbi Goren wrote an article called Gvurat 
מצדה לאור המקורות, which in English is the heroism of מצדה in light of the primary sources, a famous article that he wrote. And essentially, this article of his sparked a huge, huge halachic debate in Israel, amongst the rabbis, among certain rabbis, and it touched on the very thorny issue of suicide in combat. You know, now we have an army for the first time in you know, 1900-odd years. Um, is an Israeli soldier allowed to commit suicide if he has military secrets and he's about to be captured? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, these things happen in battle. What, you know, is, is he allowed to shoot himself? Is he allowed to ask someone else to, uh, shoot, to shoot him? Um, these are very, very real issues. And unfortunately, he didn't really have many Jewish sources. Right. At least not the sources that, that would normally be consulted. He right? didn't have kosher normally. sources. Correct. He didn't have kosher sources. So normally he would have gone to, gone, gone yeah, to the Talmud. He, normally he, he would have opened up and found a precedent somewhere. And, and, and you know, he, he would have formulated some halachic opinion. But he wasn't able to mm-hmm. do that. But his first question in this famous es- essay is, did what the Jews did on Masada fall within uh, the confines of, of, of halacha? In other words, were the Jews at Masada correct to commit suicide under those conditions? Was their conduct in accordance with halacha or not? That's his first question. So was that event, that event of suicide, of mass suicide, was that event sanctioned by halacha? So his answer is a resounding yes, a, res- a resounding yes, but he had to create his own precedent. So he uses the story of King Shaul, King Saul, um, as a basis. And he tells us, he reminds us that King Saul was pursued by the Philistines. Many of the Jews were killed at uh, Har Gilboa. And the enemy now had its sights on King Saul's sons. They had already killed three of his sons, and they were closing in on Shaul, on King Saul, and they had already wounded him with arrows. And King Saul famously calls, on, calls upon his armor bearer and tells him to kill him. And the armor bearer hmm. refuses, as we know. And King Saul takes his own sword and he falls on his sword. And this is where the expression to fall on your sword comes from. And he basically committed suicide. He, he killed himself. And he was right to do so because when the Philistines eventually found him, they cut off his head and they fastened his body to a wall. He knew these things were going to happen and he didn't want to give the Philistines the uh, um, op- opportunity of capturing him alive. So, uh, mm-hmm. Rabbi Gorin, Chief Rabbi Gorin, at that stage, uh, the Chief Rabbi of the Army, um, he uses this as a as a halachic, as a legal precedent to to show that under certain circumstances, it is permissible to commit suicide in war. And he goes on to show that even the Tosafists <clears throat> um, were later, you know, the Tosafists were one of the early codifiers of the uh, Talmud and the uh, Gomorrah and Halacha. He gives a couple of examples where they showed that suicide was sometimes permissible in the face of inevitable and agonizing suffering 
and certainly in situations of 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 war. Um, so therefore, Rabbi Gorin says categorically that according to Halacha, what the Jews did at Masada was kosher and permissible and correct, and they are to be lauded for their actions. And he goes on to extrapolate from those precedents. And he says that if a modern Israeli soldier finds himself in trying situations where the only way out is through suicide, he says that they could either ask someone to, to, to kill them or they could, they, they could commit suicide in, 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 in combat, um, um, sadly, uh, and, under such circumstances. Right? So this was, this was Rabbi Gorin's view. Um, and as, as we mentioned, it's, it sparked a huge debate. He had a lot of people who agreed with him, but many rabbis disagreed with Rabbi Gorin. And one of his chief detractors was Rabbi Moshe Tzvi Neria. And he gave a counter-argument. His counter-argument is also very, very interesting. He actually studied Elazar ben Yai's last speech just before the Jews on Masada committed suicide. Remember, he was the leader of the Jews on Masada. So he, he, he studied, he studied um, Elazar ben Yai's last uh, um, speech. And essentially, he says that Elazar ben Yai was saying that any time a Jew is subject to foreign rule, not that he's going to be killed, but he's going to be subjected to foreign rule, um, they, they should kill themselves rather than live under foreign dominion. I mean that means that you and I, who live in uh, you know you live in a, in 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 Canada, I live in uh, Africa. We we live under foreign dominion. <laughs> you know we we should rather kill ourselves than than live in Africa uh, or in Canada. Um, so uh, basically, Rabbi Nuria was saying that if you really take Elazar Benyo's speech seriously, then the entire Jewish nation should have committed suicide right. rather than go into uh, um, Golos. You know, so he says you can't really take a precedent from the story of, Ma- of Masada. So that was, that was his counter-argument to Rabbi Gorin, and he said categorically, in sharp contradistinction to um, Rabbi Gorin, that what happened at Masada was Keneged, uh, the halacha was against the Jewish law, and he called it dangerous, uh, a dangerous precedent to, to set for, for people in the future. So he was completely against Rabbi Gorin's view. And fine. So that was part of the, the debate. But what, what's interesting, you know, again, we don't really take sides in our discussion. We merely record the history so we can have an un- understanding with you know, upon which to inform perhaps opinions which could come later. But at least for the first time, we see that um, suicide for political and ideological reasons came to the forefront of Jewish literature for the first time in 2000 years, with Rabbi Gorin bringing this to the attention of some of the um, rabbis who debated with him. But you mentioned earlier on that Rabbi Gorin found some interesting sources. So besides Shaul and you know, a couple of Balea Tosafot here and there, he, he had to take from sources that rabbis don't usually consult. I say don't usually consult 
because sometimes they do, but more often than not, they don't. What sources are these that Rabbi Goran consulted that we don't normally consult? He took from the apocryphal literature. Mm-hmm. The apocrypha was this vast body of literature that appeared on the scene around about the time of the last or latter prophets, the time of uh, Daniel and Ezra, um, some, some even later. But they were not considered authoritative enough to be canonized in, in the Jewish Tanakh. So they weren't recorded in the Tanakh, but they're from the same period as the Tanakh. They could have been, is Ben Sira is an example, the book of Maccabees, the two books of, of Maccabees 1 and Maccabees 2. Um, uh, there's a very, very vast literature of apocryphal writings. Um, mm-hmm. But the rabbis never considered these authoritative enough to be considered with, with, with to fall within the canon of the um, Tanakh. Um, so Rabbi Goran wasn't afraid to consult with that. And by the way, if I can just add in parenthesis, Rabbi Goran was in good company because many rabbis did quote from apocryphal re- uh, literature. For example, Rav Sadia Gaon mm-hmm. was very interested in Ben, ben Sira, but that's a topic for another discussion. Rabbi Goran also took from another controversial work which you spoke about earlier on, Jordan, and that is he took from Josephus. So Rabbi Goran wasn't afraid to consult Josephus, and it appears as if he considered Josephus's account to be accurate enough for him to, to draw from in order to inform his um, opinion. So <laughs> he took from some very interesting and very unusual sources that rabbis usually don't consult with when it comes to um, formulating their halachic opinions, but he had no problem with that whatsoever because he believed that um, the book of Maccabees, for example, um, described a very, very proud Jewish army and very, very strong Jewish soldiers. The Talmud chose to ignore that mm-hmm. and the Talmud chose not to speak about Jewish armies and Rabbi Goren believed that he understood why it was that the Talmud chose to ignore that whole swath of literature, he understood that they were trying to change this ethos that we've been speaking about to an ethos of passivity. And Rabbi Gorin said, it's enough of this. It's enough of having this exilic mentality. We now have a state of Israel. We have an army. It's 1960. We need to do what we have to do, and we're going to take from whatever sources we can find And if the sources that describe how Jews fought, how proud Jews fought in the past are from the apocryphal literature or from Josephus, we'll take from there and we'll use that as a basis for our army of the um, future. And um, if I can just add, there was one group that was very conspicuously absent from the discussion, from, from this debate, from Rabbi Gorin's debate. Um, it was a group of ultra-Orthodox rabbis who were generally uh, not Zionistic, some of them even anti-Zionistic. Right. Uh, they certainly would have an issue 
would take issue with considering Rabbi Gorin's article to be part of rabbinic literature. In other words, um, breaking the silence of 2,000 years, they would say you can't, you've got to compare apples with, with apples. You know, Rabbi Gorin's not, not a real rabbi. We're talking about real rabbis from, from the uh, Talmud. You, you know, who is he to break rabbinic silence, uh, you know, coming in, the, in, in, in 1960? And they, they refused to get involved in, in, in this debate. They didn't like the fact that he chose these strange sources. Mm-hmm. And um, um, essentially, the ultra-Orthodox group of rabbis followed the ethos that was set when it got changed around about the time of Bar Kokhba in the Talmud, and they perpetuated that um, belief in Jewish passivity that we don't do anything to bring a, around, bring about a betterment of our condition. We don't strive too much to bring the Messiah nearer or closer. We just perpetuate these ideas that Jews don't fight, Jews don't create a state, Jews don't, uh, um, you know, rise in uh, um, uh, rebellion against other nations, um, and and they they perpetuated the two thousand years of silence, and they continued that that silence. They were not prepared to get involved in the discussion for exactly the same reasons as the rabbis after Bar Kokhba used to change this basic ethos of the Jewish people from being a proud nation who knew how to fight and defend themselves to one of um, submission and passivity governed by foreign rulers and foreign countries in foreign lands. It's an um, excellent point, and I think it uh, may be another way to encapsulate it. it, It has to do with the, and this is a big, broad topic that we can maybe talk about it in another episode, but it has to do with the rabbinical attitude toward the state of Israel, really, right? Like what is the, um, you know, if you are, if you are uh, lukewarm about Zionism or perhaps opposed to Zionism, uh, as in this community, many people are, what is yes. your attitude toward the fact that, you know, if there is a Jewish state, it's not the Jewish state that you want. <laughs> and there is a Jewish army, and it's maybe not the Jewish army that you want, but it exists. And so, what is the attitude towards it? And how do you decide uh, how you know what it can do and what it can't do? How do you you know how do you make how do you make a halachic ruling? About yes, it and that's a fascinating subject, Jordan. We'll we'll have to do that at some some other stage because it boggles my mind how how people can can oppose such a notion where you have in Eretz Israel today a situation where people are are studying Torah um, um, in, in in such large numbers <clears throat> on such a large scale across the board. Probably more people are studying Torah today in the shivers in Israel than ever in our history. So why anybody who's interested in Torah and Torah learning can be against the state of Israel is, is, is something that you know, really needs to be fathomed and explored. I think that we've set ourselves up for a whole bunch of future episode topics <laughs> here today, guys. We have our work cut out for us now. Okay. Thank you for an excellent conversation about this. This was great. Thank you, Jordan. I've really enjoyed um, speaking with you And thank you again for all your help and for your trouble. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Take care. All the best to you.